Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome to the final two episodes of our spring series. We hope you've enjoyed listening to our amazing conversations with people trying to make the experience of serious illness better. In this episode, we bring you part one of our Ask Dr. Sammy Town Hall event, which featured us answering some of our more commonly asked questions. Next week, we will bring you part two of this conversation. And after that, we will be taking a summer break to enjoy the sunshine before coming back with some amazing interviews in the fall. We have guests from all over Canada and all over the world. We can't wait to share them with you. Thank you. Welcome to our town hall event called Ask Dr. Sammy. Um, we are excited to co-sponsor this with Hospice Palliative Care Ontario in their uh, virtual community center. And uh, this, is, this is new for us. We're taking audience questions about our episodes and we're posing them to Dr. Sammy, who's kind of in the hot seat. We had tons of questions. We have put them on a sheet. We'll try to get through as many as we can. I think we can jump right in um, if people are okay. And hopefully you'll hear your question answered. And if not, we will respond to you by email or on social media. So the first question actually is about the name of our podcast. Like why, where did the name Waiting Room Revolution come from? And why did we talk about a waiting room? Yeah, I mean... First of all, I love the title, The Waiting Room Revolution, (laughs) but I'm biased. But I've had a lot of people actually um, say that they love it too. Um, You know, I guess we think of it in two ways. One is how much time people actually um, spend physically in waiting rooms and um, the anxiety and the pressure um, and the mystery of waiting, waiting, waiting. And sometimes people are waiting for hours. And so we thought, you know, what a great name because people can actually use this information that we're providing them, um, even possibly listen to the podcast so that they can start preparing themselves literally in the waiting room to have a better outcome when they interact with the um, healthcare provider. But there was also a um, metaphorical waiting room where people always seem to be waiting for something, uh, for more information, for clarity, for another treatment, um, for a sign. And so there's a heck of a lot of waiting happening. And so we thought it was appropriate to, to call it what it is. Yeah, and I think I loved it because we were trying to create a shift, this revolution, I know that happened, we decided on the name before uh, stuff happened in the US, but this revolution and it was the patients and families. It really spoke to our target audience of uh, every patient, every family, every future caregiver uh, and current caregiver could have a role and changing their, and not feeling helpless and, and passive, but could be more active. So that's where, that's where the waiting room came from. Okay, we have a we bunch should, of questions. CN, we should tell them about all the funny names we had before we, Finally landed. No, I think we, we have hundreds of names. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, there was all kinds of that. Yeah, from anyway, that's a, that's a whole other topic. See, I would wake we, up in the morning and find texts um, of, oh, this is a great name, or this is a great name. <laughs> yeah, we, I have a list somewhere. It's a very long. Okay, we had a bunch of questions about communication, about the, you know, dying, I guess, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I think this is a really this is a really important question because we speak about the illness journey 
and you know hope for the best but plan for alternate outcomes but we don't actually call it you know plan for the worst or planning for death and we don't really use death and dying and end of life very much and and why is that is it because yeah why why do we not why do we sort of tiptoe around this you know it reminds me of when i told my sister you, you know maybe 4 years ago i said you know, I, I really want to write this book, um, what to expect when you're dying, you know, um, just like what to expect when you're expecting. And my sister looked right at me and she said, now, why would anyone in their right mind want to pick up a book like that? And so that just um, sort of encapsulates uh what we were picking up from people, the signals we were picking up from people that um, the idea of um, naming it something about dying or describing dying too early in this revolution, that that might become too scary or become a possible barrier for people accessing the information. Um, and what we really wanted to do is shift from all this um, clutter downstream in the end when people are actively dying and reposition all of the strategies earlier on in the illness journey um, before we ever talk about death and dying. Um, we eventually do get there. Um, as CN said, we just dropped an episode um, yesterday that's um, called When Time is Running Out. And we do talk overtly about dying but we didn't want it to become a barrier too early. Yeah, and I think this was the light bulb for us that when we, you know, we're palliative care experts, and I know this is Hospice Palliative Care Ontario, you know, many of the people are founded, so maybe there's comfort with using that language. But for, we know, for, you know, it's a death and access society, 90% of people are, or more, uh, equate palliative care with dying. And so in some ways, our, the innovation was to uh, embed the principles of palliative care upstream um, in a different language that would be accessible and acceptable to 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 the masses, so to speak, and and I think that meant that we in, are in fact talking about skills that could be used for chronic disease or even for survivors. Like because when you are diagnosed with anything that's serious, you don't know what the uncertainty is ahead, and that's the point. That feeling of when your whole world is upside down or anything scary, um, that's. This is who I think needs our message. And it isn't only in the context of how to die well, because the whole journey and some of that last years and years and years is where we realized we needed to intervene. So that's why it's not that we're, I don't think we're actually trying to uh, use euphemisms. I think when we talk about it, we, there are times when we are really talking about you know, the last months of life. But I think a lot of our keys can be used right up front at diagnosis. And I, we say that a lot. So I, I don't want to repeat myself. Hey, okay, we'll jump you, to the next you all, one. You already did. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's why our episodes are heavily edited by Art Kayla. So this is you yeah, seeing the unvarnished you. look. That's why you guys get the insider look. Okay. How do you respond when your dying loved one, especially if their young person says, I don't want to die? Yeah. Um, so that's one of those comments up there with one that'll stop you in your tracks, of course, um, and can feel like a bomb when someone says that, you know, your heart stops. Um, but, you know, what I have learned um, over the years is that, you know, just pausing before you say anything can be a very powerful response um, that's not verbal when someone says something big and scary. And, you know, 
if you don't know how to respond, it's often just as good to just listen. Um, you know, it is important to be a powerful presence when people are reflecting on things. I don't want to die. Where is God in this story? Um, what's going to happen after I die? Sometimes we don't have perfect answers for these huge questions. And so sometimes the best thing you can do is really just be an ear, be present, um, be a witness to the question and, and just be quiet. Um, sometimes what I do after I invite more thoughts from the person. Can you tell me more about that? Um, thank you for sharing that with me. Um, I want to hear more about that. Then I remind them, or you can remind your loved one, that I'm here with you, that we're in this together. And see, you've never answered their question or made um, a solution to their comment, but you, they still feel your presence and your engagement. And I think that's what's most important. That's beautiful. Yeah, because what I've, I've learned from you and people like Leah Steinberg is it's so easy to say when people say that you, you your first reaction is to say, oh, that's not going to happen. Don't worry. We're going to mm -hmm. fight for you so yeah. that it doesn't happen. And instead, what you're saying is to listen, to be present, to invite more about the emotion behind that, because they're actually asked in some ways that's an invitation to them to talk more about their fears. Mm -hmm. And if you kind of push it down by saying, oh, you know, we don't, don't worry, think positive, let don't talk like that. You're actually shutting down their invitation to try to explore their emotion more. Anyway. Sometimes um, our, our natural instinct is to run away or move away uh, from these moments. Um, but when you have that instinct, uh, sometimes it really means lean into it. But lean in, leaning in doesn't mean you have to actually have a solution. You just want to be present. Beautiful. Okay, this one we've, we've I think, um, has come up in our podcast, but also uh, in episode uh, two, I think, but also it, it came up again in the question. And so do I have to know my prognosis if I don't want to know? And maybe, and maybe this is connected to the idea of somebody, maybe one person wants to know and somebody else doesn't want to know. How do, how do you navigate that? Yeah, so I mean, the short answer to that is no. Um, no one needs to be forced uh, to know their prognosis. And that's something we had to clarify actually early on um, <clears throat> in the podcast series, because people were saying to us, are you trying to tell me that everyone has to know their prognosis? But they don't. In fact, everyone is different. Um, if I might want to know my prognosis, at a time when I'm facing an illness, but my husband might not want to know uh, my prognosis or his prognosis. We're all different. And that's really um, spelt out in the episode called Know Your Style. Um, everyone is different. Um, but uh, this information does exist. And that's our point is that um, we want people to know that it is possible to give them a prognosis. In the beginning of an illness, um, this is very generalized and based on, you know, millions and billions of people who have had the same illness. And it's not until later in the illness that we can actually give an estimation, which is an art, about an individual person's um, prognosis. So a person doesn't have to know, but what we do, what we want them to know is that the information exists if they want it. Um, 
and no one can ever give an exact time. So uh, it, it's usually um, a general timeline. Um, and we really don't want anyone to have an exact prognosis because we're not perfect at that anyway. It's, it's more of an art than it is a science. Um, and what can happen when people have a prognosis is they start counting down um, and they get the calendar out and it can create more anxiety. For other people, they have to know the prognosis. It's an important piece of intel for them for, for planning for practical plans or just to feel grounded. So everyone is different, but the information does exist for people. Yeah, and, I, and we talked about this in that episode, uh, uh, maybe it is Walk Two Roads, but it is about the idea that sometimes, you know, doctors shy away from the prognosis because they think they want an exact date and they're scared, they don't want, they're hesitant to do that because there's so much variation and, you know, it's averages and you, you know, nobody's the average. So, there's a difference between knowing a timeline, which maybe is what you're interested in, but what we find, some people don't want to know that, but many people would like to know, or be, what are the stages? Uh, what, what can I prepare for as this happens? And the kind, you know, like my body will get weaker. It will be harder to do this. You might need to think about getting help to do this. And those kinds of things we can prepare for. And it, it might take a long time, might be a short time, but I think that is helpful information and it doesn't have to be connected to a date. Um, yeah. So sometimes they just want to know, you know, what did the different chapters of this illness look like? What does the early stage look like? What does the middle stage or the late stage look like? And how will I know when I'm in any of the stages? Um, yeah. And so people can um, want that information, but not necessarily want to know what the timeline looks like. But anyone yeah. who ever says that there's no crystal ball um, is feeling anxious about giving information um, because there is information in our crystal ball to help people understand how things are going to unfold, including prognosis. Yeah. I love the way you said that the different chapter, you know, this, the things that are going to happen, the different chapters of the illness, that's a different way of asking it. That opens up a different conversation than how much time do I have? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay. There are a whole bunch of questions about communication with healthcare providers. This is not surprising. This is one of the biggest challenges patients and families face with how much information um, do they want, but also what are the right ways to interact with them when they feel there are barriers. So one of the questions, this is a, a common one, my doctor is so busy and I never get any chance to ask any questions and what can I do? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, and I hear this a ton. Um, come prepared. Uh, that's the best piece of information and uh, make a list uh, and start asking questions early, um, early in the illness is what I'm saying. So if you uh, tend not to ask questions and then suddenly show up with a hundred questions, um, you know, that's not as effective. So um, plant the seed, the seed early with your care provider and say, you know, I'm the kind of person that uh, asks a lot of questions. And so is it okay if I bring one or two or three questions every time I come to visit? Um, or let them know before the visit. Um, Hi, I just like to leave a message for nurse so and so or Dr. So and so I have two questions today. Um, many doctors and nurses will readjust their um, calendar to accommodate if they know in advance. 
Um, so, you know, they might say, well, why don't I book you right before lunch or I'll book you at the end of the day. Um, so it, it, it's um, giving them a heads up is often helpful. So because yes, healthcare providers are very busy and they expect to go at a certain rhythm and cadence over their workday. And uh, if someone comes with a hundred questions, it can feel like it's derailing their schedule. But the, um, the questions are usually valid and very important, but maybe pace them out um, or leave questions before you go and ask, is it possible for you to get in touch with me when you have time? Um, so, so I, I agree with everything you said. I, I mean, we often, we've heard from clinicians say, like, if somebody comes with 10 questions, they will say, okay, which is the most important that you'd like to talk about today? So similarly, the flip of that, the advice to patients and families, I would say is think of all the questions and highlight your two or three most important that you know of all of these, these sort of encapsulate them. And you can say, look, I have a whole bunch, but I've already prioritized. These are the three that I really need to answer and tell them that right at the beginning so that, like you said, the clinician, if they have 15 minutes booked for you, they will leave time. They will talk quiet. They'll skip over this or that to make sure that they have your questions. And you can ask like, how much time do we have today? Or um, uh, I think, and, and I think coming in with your questions ahead of time shows them that you've thought through, like, it feels like you're both on the same page, that you're respecting their time, but you're, uh, it's, but you also have this important question that's important to you. Mm -hmm. I also think you don't only have to get your questions answered by the, the doctor or the nurse. Like you could say, look, I have so many, is there another, is there a better, should I make another appointment where we could talk about some of these, or is there a social worker I should talk to, or is there another group that some of these might be better answered at? It might not be them. They might say, you know what, there's a, there, there's a, a support group, our social worker, we do this every week. Um, this might be another avenue. So don't only assume that, uh, you know, the, the busiest person in the group is the only person who can provide you information. I think what we're trying to say is that questions are important. And we don't want you to not ask questions because you think everyone is so busy. It's just how you do it. Yeah. And I like your, your preparation. The first you said, if you prepare ahead of you, they will feel like you're respecting their time, but also you will get the most important stuff answered. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is connected because what if you ask those questions and it says, how do you deal with a healthcare provider who is evading your questions or you feel like they are, and you feel like they're ignoring you or they change the subject or this one says they even leave the room. Mm -hmm. um, what, yeah. uh, do you have any advice about that? Yeah. Okay, well, my first piece of advice is for everyone to listen to the episode next Tuesday that we're dropping because this is a scenario that happened to someone we interviewed. Uh, and this is extremely frustrating uh, for patients and families when they feel like they're not being heard. Um, it's horrible. So, you know, one of the suggestions I have um, is for patients at the beginning or families at the beginning of a visit is to seek a common understanding of why you're at the visit that day. Because sometimes the frustration comes from different agendas. The patient and family have an agenda and the healthcare provider has an agenda. And when they're not matching, then there's this struggle. Um, so set the appointment up by um, finding common ground. And um, know that if the healthcare provider is evading a question or seems like they're ignoring you or leaves the room, it is a signal that there's a discomfort there. Um, 
I don't believe that there's any intention for people to be rude or ignore people, but there's something else going on there. Um, and it usually is the person either feels that they don't have the answer or um, that they're worried about giving the answer because they don't want to upset someone or make them sad or make them scared. So we have this maladaptive behavior where we just sort of zip up and walk out and go about our, our business. Um, so one of the other strategies I would say is um, let your doctor and nurse know, um, you know, their marching orders. You can tell them, I have a really important question to ask you today. It's really important to me. Um, and, you know, even if you don't have the answer, um, I'd still like you to hear my question and I'd still like you to try. Um, I, I know you might not know, or you might say, um, doctor or nurse, you have my permission to speak openly and frankly with me. Um, I know this is an uncomfortable question I'm asking, um, but it's, you know, something I really need to know. Uh, don't worry about making me sad. Don't worry about making me anxious or scared. I'm the kind of person that blah, blah, blah. So um, telling them who you are and how important this is to you would probably engage them and relieve their discomfort with getting into some kind of tricky, complicated discussion. Yeah. And this um, it's a little bit, I was thinking as you were talking, like the other thing that I often get calls from friends because, uh, you know, I'm not a clinician, I always tell them, but I, I work in the system is like when the, it depends when you have to understand that uh, clinicians specialize in a certain, you know, part of the body in a certain system. And I, it's sort of like the pregnancy example, you know, the x-ray tech or the, the ultrasound technician, their job is to do the ultrasound. They cannot really legally answer questions about the baby. They leave that to the obstetrics gynecologist person. So they, they, they will avoid your question because they are there. They don't feel comfortable being the one to give you the diagnosis or to tell you something's wrong. They just, they're not trained to do so. So it, you might be asking, you have to kind of know that who uh, is who you're meeting and why, so that you are not, you know, asking questions about cancer, say to uh, oncology questions to your cardiologist, because they will say, I don't know, ask your oncologist. They won't say it like that, but they will avoid your question. So it sometimes comes out with you having a clear sense of who you're meeting and why and how that connects to your health. Because they will say, oh, you should see this person and this person, and this person, but you, if sometimes they're very good and tell you why, but some like, really, you know, somebody in your team has to keep track of what we're making this appointment for and what information we're getting from them. And that's how you're sort of keeping track of, of what's happening. So I think that might be a part of it, trying to ask the right questions to the right people and family doctors have, you know, know who you are and have more time and maybe sort of who's the quarterback on the team, who's the main person. So cancer, for example, oncology, they usually are the main quarterback, even though they send you to different, you know, things to investigate tests the quarterback person is the, the captain, so to speak, is the oncologist, and they will be able to put the pieces together. Thanks for listening to part one of our Ask Dr. Sammy Town Hall event. Join us next week for the conclusion of this episode, where we answer more questions from the audience. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. The podcast is edited and produced by me, Sien Xiao, and Kayla McMillan. Special thanks to Krista Honstra 
principle of Clarity Hub. Please go to our website to join in the conversation, waitingroomrevolution.com.